Hi there. My name's Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. Now, this episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which time public worship has been disrupted. We don't have it every Sunday. Therefore, all sermons have been recorded ahead of time to make them available online. The preached texts are included in the audio of this episode, but you can still find a link to them in the episode description. Unless otherwise noted, all scripture is NRSV, used under the gratis policy of the copyright holder, the National Council of Churches. Our second reading comes from the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the first chapter. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for forty days, tempted by Satan, And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. Remember just very recently when I said Mark uses immediately as a keyword, how that sets the tone of his whole gospel? Mark's style of writing is such that he doesn't mark things in the calendar as much as the others, and he doesn't give as many side stories in between the big events. Instead, we're meant to feel a sense of urgency and immediacy between those big events. Jesus will take a moment here or there to withdraw, but spends most of his day going from one task to the next. And if you didn't know that, you might be a bit thrown off balance by what we just heard from Mark. Because you may well remember a fair amount of what's going on here today. I dare say after Christmas, this is the season even non-churchgoers know the most about. Like, Lent is 40 days long because Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. And that we fast, give something up or add a discipline, during this time to honor Jesus fasting out in the wilderness during that time. Whether you heard it in worship or Sunday school or you just have a a passing familiarity with Lent and why we do this, you may even be familiar with a few more details. Like, isn't the temptation supposed to be something about turning stones to food? Wasn't Jesus tempted to jump off of some big building? And didn't Satan try to get Jesus to worship him rather than God? Those three temptations of these 40 days have been the source of, along with the fast for that matter, have been the source of many sermons over the years. They're used as a lens through which we might examine ourselves, the church, the world, Jesus, even Satan. Mark doesn't record any of them. Now, maybe that's simply his style. Or maybe it's a a practicality of history. Whomever Jesus gave the details of what happened out there, he was alone, Maybe that person hadn't passed it along to Mark. Mark is the first gospel, most certainly the first gospel to be written down, at least, but I don't think it's something quite so practical. Instead, maybe Mark wants us to focus on a few key details, at least sometimes. So let's give that a try.
Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends upon him, and then the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. Again, it's happening really fast. And there he's tempted by Satan. One of the few details we get. And Satan, as you recall, in Hebrew, means something like prosecuting attorney or accuser. Satan's job among the other angels is to show where humans fall short, where we're guilty. It only makes sense that we'd regard such a figure as our enemy. If God considered us innocent, the last thing we'd want is <laughs> someone coming around and trying to convince God otherwise. Sounds like something an enemy would do. But the courtroom imagery might be a little bit misleading for us nowadays with our changing culture because our day in court, if you have one, is, whether, is about whether or not you did a particular thing. If you're innocent or guilty, it depends on whether you did that thing or why you did it. It's about an event. The heavenly courtroom is more about character, like your whole life. It assumes that your actions, intentions, circumstances, your character are all so intimately interconnected that there's hardly any worth mentioning that, you know, you're guilty, you really did do that thing, but you didn't really do this. Because it's bigger than this and that. It's whether you're in right standing before God. Is your life as a whole consistent with what God has created you to be, what God has called you to do? So we do the text a disservice by simply calling it Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. It's not like, oh, I mean, this is another change in context. It's not like he's tempted to eat another piece of cake. This isn't a temptation to sleep in a little more or skip his workout. The way we use tempted in English today almost always means there's something over there that I probably shouldn't do, but I kind of want to. It's drawing me in that direction. We're missing on one of those key details that Mark leaves in. Because the word woulda, coulda, shoulda, in my opinion, been translated test. Because again, this isn't about guilt over one particular action. It's about who you really are, or in this case, who Jesus really is. Because again, we're not given a lot of details. Jesus is baptized and declared the Son of God by the voice from heaven, and a moment later, he's being tested. Mark puts that right there together. We can surmise then that the test is to see what exactly does it mean to be the Son of God? What kind of Messiah will Jesus be? What is different about Jesus than the rest of humanity or other prophets or rabbis? Okay, so let's bring it back around then. I claimed Mark keeps it brief and only includes these few details, perhaps so we'd focus in on them and see what we find if we just focus on those few. Well, here's one idea. This short passage has a lot of key figures. In fact, to the original audience of Mark, it's got nearly all of the key players that precede Jesus' public ministry. John the Baptist prepared the way. He's preaching repentance that a big change will come. He's roused and gathered crowds so they're ready to hear from Jesus when he comes preaching. Jesus' baptism marks the beginning of his public ministry. So we're at a transition here. Because the text starts with John baptizing and ends with John being arrested. It's not just a transition for Jesus, but also for John. There's a, an implied passing of the torch. While John's in prison, Jesus will get to the work that John was doing before. While John frames the text as to what a, you know, the public things people would witness, like anyone who was around on earth would see this, Mark gives us insight into the heavenly realm with what comes in between. God the Father declares Jesus the beloved Son, and God the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness to begin his ministry. The most notable heavenly figure, then, who's not a person of the Trinity, is Satan, and he's right there doing his job as well. 
Jesus, incarnate as human, can be tested by Satan, so he is. The result? Well, we don't get many details beyond what's implied. Jesus will carry on with his ministry, so it's safe to say he passed any tests presented out there. But more than that, we do get this one quick little note. Angels waited on him among the wild beasts. Sounds like if Satan was testing him to see who Jesus really was, he found Jesus to be something rather special. No ordinary person has angels wait on them while beasts sit by. No ordinary person would have the heavenly realm and the chaos of nature both conform to him, to support him during his time of trial. That right there may be the point of narrowing it down to just these few details. That heaven and earth are in alignment when it comes to Jesus in a way they simply had never been. The three persons of the Trinity, the angels, including Satan, are all acting in agreement with who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And the earthly realm moves to conform as well, from picking up where John left off to wild beasts sitting by. So then, let's close out with the regular question. What does any of that have to do with us? Well, two things. First, you're not Jesus. Heaven and earth don't conform to us. Any message that takes this story and claims something like, well, Jesus defeated Satan, so you can too, or anything like that, that's missing the point. The point is Jesus can pass this test, defeat Satan, even though virtually no one else can. Don't let this text suggest to you that since you were baptized, you woulda, coulda, shoulda lived sinlessly. That's not it. Second, and this one comes up a lot, but it bears repeating, Jesus is who he is because of what he does, and he does what he does because of who he is. And Jesus demonstrates and asserts his authority as one who has power over earthly things and supernatural matters. It is precisely because heaven and earth conform to him that when he speaks of our life and our salvation, us on heaven and on earth, that we can believe what he says. He does not He's not just one more voice among many. He's the voice. He's the one that could pass any test Satan would throw at him, and that assures you of your salvation despite any test Satan could throw at you. He goes to the wilderness for the same reason he goes to the cross and everywhere else for our sake. Even if there's wild beasts afoot, imprisonment of his friend, all manner of hardship around us, all these things in their time conform to him. And Jesus advocates, advocates on our behalf. Therefore, at the end of the day and at the end of the age, we trust what he says when he says we are safe, when he says we are saved. Amen. Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end here, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio of my sermons does not always include proper citations. While I do some self-study and lean on my seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular text study. I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast, Sermon Brainwave. 
Some credit is due to at least one of those sources. Wherever you are, whenever you hear this, please be well. Take care of yourself and each other, and have a great rest of the week.